And as we look uh, in Acts chapter 20 in the New Testament, just keep your Bibles open. We have a lot of verses to look at. And I want us to think about this subject that when God changes our direction, there's a uh, evangelism tool called the Four Spiritual Laws that we used long, long time ago. It's still out there. Billy Graham uh, changed it up a little bit. But uh, the first spiritual law says this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that is so true. God does have a plan for each and every one of us. And that plan starts as we look at the subsequent laws that talk about repenting of our sin, trusting in Christ Jesus as our Savior. The wonderful plan starts with salvation. But you know what? That plan often gets confusing. As a new follower of Jesus Christ, things happen that, you know, we just don't understand. And we know from Scripture that God actually causes or allows certain events into our life for His purposes. And we're left wondering, Lord, what's, what's the purpose in this? Other times, even after we become a new believer in Christ, we make some sinful choices. And because of that, we wonder, have we messed up the wonderful plan for good? You know, maybe now no longer God has a, a wonderful plan for us. Maybe we're just going to have to settle for a good plan. Sometimes in our human selfishness, anybody ever done this? We try to force our wonderful plans on God. Somebody's nodding, yeah. We tell God what the GPS looks like to get us from here to there. And we say, you know, Lord, we've got this all mapped out. This is the way, you know, I have it figured out all for you. I'll do my part. All you got to do is just bless it and I'll show you how good my wonderful plan can be. Then there are times as we mature in our faith, we're truly following God's purposes for our life. And it seems like all of a sudden he changes his mind. He changes our direction. He, he changes our focus. Can't wait for Pastor G. Young to get back from his trip with his wife to just hear about, this is what we intended to do, here's what happens, but to God be the glory. But when those things happen, we're caught in this transitional moment. And we're thinking, well, I thought God intended this. Does he now intend this? I don't know about for you, but these, these changes in direction can be a little paralytic for me. It's like, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. Well, in these verses in chapter 20... Paul is confronted with several changes of directions. And not only Paul, but God's people, God's church is learning how to flow in the, the rhythm of closely following God. So today my prayer is that we will find the wonderful plan that God has for us in this season of life in which we find ourselves. So let's notice the many ways that Paul and his friends encountered and adjusted to these change of plans. So look at verse 1 and 2 closely. After the uproar had ceased... Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. 
And when he'd gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. Okay, if you were here last week, if you weren't, go on uh, online and listen to it. Pastor Jerry just preached this solid sermon about Paul spending the last three years of his life in the previous chapter in the city of Ephesus. And it ended in an uproar because the silversmiths started losing business. As people became believers in Jesus Christ, they quit buying silver idols. So the economy for that industry was going down and it caused a riot. Kind of makes you wonder what would happen here in America if believers stopped purchasing their idols. Uh, what it might do to some of the businesses and might create an uproar in our midst as well. So in Ephesus last week, the silversmiths created this riot, which fortunately the civil authorities kind of quieted down. So that's where we start. After this uproar ceased, Paul continued to exhort and encourage the believers to stay strong in the Lord. And then he leaves, and if you had a map, he goes north to Macedonia, where there's two churches that we know uh, he had a heart for because we have books in the New Testament after them, Philippians and Thessalonians. So he probably encouraged them there. And while he was in Macedonia, some scholars believe he wrote the book that we call 2 Corinthians because immediately after this it says he leaves Macedonia, he heads to Greece, probably to Corinth, to straighten out and encourage the church there as well. And then in verse 3, we find out he spends three months there. And guess what? Another plot was formed. How, how many plots against Paul have there been as we've been going through the book of Acts? Uh, somebody needs to go back and count how many times that's been. There's this plot. Just as he's about to set sail to Syria, so he stops his plans. God changes direction. You're not going to Syria. You're going to go back. To Macedonia. So here's this change of directions. Why? Well, we don't know why for sure. Many people believe that piecing together the evidence of these verses that we're talking about, that Paul had intended to go to Jerusalem. We're going to catch that next week. Uh, he's got this heart to go to Jerusalem. And the way to get there would have been through Syria with a layover or a change of ships before heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover or what we would call Easter. So you got the season in time. He wants to get there in time for the Passover. So on this ship would have been other Jews who were also making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. And they're upset about the teaching of Jesus Christ being the way to the Father. And so they put this plot together just as the ship is ready to embark. Now, we just have to fill in the blanks. Were they going to attack Paul on the docks? Uh, were they going to wait till he got on the ship and throw him overboard? We don't know any of that. All we know, the plot was discovered and there was a change of plans. He cancels the Jerusalem itinerary and he goes north again to Macedonia. Again, why? Why? Well, was Paul afraid for his life? Was he afraid of this plot and that he might be killed? 
that doesn't seem to fit with Paul because all the previous chapters, remember, he's been threatened, he's been beaten, uh, actually died on one occasion, you know, and he gets up and he goes right back into the city to preach the gospel. It doesn't seem that Paul ran out of fear. What helped in this change of plans? I'm sure Paul prayed about it. He sought God's wisdom. But there's no mention here of a revelation from God. There could have been. We just don't read of one. Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, doesn't tell us. But on previous occasions, Luke does say, you know, God spoke to Paul or God visited him in a dream and said, don't go here, I want you to go over here. There's no mention of that. So perhaps some clues are found in the next few verses here. A few hints when we get to verses 3 through 6. Now trust me, I am not going to read these verses to you, okay? I am not going to try to pronounce all those names. They're important to Paul. They'll be important to us when we get to heaven, but I'm not even going to attempt it. But I want you to think of all of these names of people as Paul's current life group, his current small group. These are men who had accompanied Paul for at least months, perhaps the whole three years that he'd been in Ephesus. And as you read these verses, you see they're, they're split up momentarily in verse 5. These companions go to, to Troas, whereas Paul and Luke go to Philippi first. And then five days later, they meet back together. So, so don't get lost in the travel plans and their chronology. I think there's something else being said here. I think in addition to the private prayers of Paul, he had a group of men that he could talk with, that he could pray with to discern the will of God and what the wonderful plan God had intended for them. Now, if that's a stretch of interpretation, at least the application is very good. When changes happen to you in life, you need a group of people to help you discern the direction of God. Would you agree with me? It's not good to make life changes without some wise counsel. And yet we do it all the time. We make major decisions without ever really talking to spiritual people about it and getting on our knees with those people and praying about it. And it concerns me that some here in the Ridge aren't engaged in a life group building community. Because if Nothing else for this purpose alone. When life changes come, you need this kind of group. Now, I'm not upset with you that you're not in a life group. I'm just saying you need wise counsel. You need people who will ask you hard questions. You need people who get on their knees with you to seek God's wonderful plan. We're talking about the spiritual care of your soul. And maybe some of us have spiritual partners outside of the Ridge Church. I don't know. This isn't a, a plug to get involved in a life group. I'm not trying to guilt you or, or arm twist you. But you need this kind of community. 
It's never enough to come and in the back of your pews, you know, fill out a prayer request and turn it in and go home. It's not enough Sunday morning email. You got this prayer request. I mean, those are good things. And the elders and the staff and the prayer warriors here at the Ridge will pray over those prayers. I'll guarantee you. But it's not the same thing in meeting with a group of people who can counsel with you over some extended time. Who can pour minutes and hours into you and ask those questions and fall on their faces with you before Almighty God. Have any of you here, and it's probably going to be in the older group, probably my age room, my age group. Have you ever heard the phrase, God or man proposes, but God disposes. Anybody ever heard that? A few. Okay. I need to be talking to an older congregation, I suppose, <laughs> you know. Man proposes, but God disposes. It comes from a Dutch pastor who wrote in the 1400s, Thomas Akempis. And he wrote a book entitled, The Imitation of Christ. It's a wonderful book. And notice what he says about this. He says, for the resolutions of the just. He's talking to believers, those who've been justified by the salvation of Jesus Christ. The resolutions, the answers to issues in life. How it gets resolved. The resolutions of the just depend rather on the grace of God than our own wisdom. And it's in him they always put their trust, whatever they take in hand. For man proposes, but God disposes. And neither is the way of man in his own hands. We can make our plans, but God has other plans. And he can interrupt our plans. He can dispose of our plans. He can also dispose fresh grace and mercy. Dispose is one of those words that can can go either way. When life change happens, you need a group to do life with. Well, Paul and uh, Luke, they don't go to Jerusalem. They're not going to make it there by Passover. They go to Philippi. They, they celebrate according to the scriptures, the unleavened bread there, which is a part of the, the Passover feast. And they meet up with their uh, band of brothers in, in Troas, and notice change number two. And change number two involves the whole church. Notice it says in verse 7, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. Okay, what is the first day of the week? Y'all can be interactive if you want to. <laughs> Sunday, yeah. Sunday is the first day of the week. This is the first time in Scripture we come on this phrase that the church met on the first day of the week. The Sabbath day is Sunday, or Saturday, the last day of the week. Remember, God created heaven's earth, everything in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. He created a Sabbath. So, now we see in print, the first time mentioned in the book of Acts, this new habit, it's starting to catch on, it's probably started with the non-Jewish converts of worshiping on the first day of the week, the day of resurrection, the day that we celebrate a risen Christ from the grave. And like any change in a church can create problems, 
I imagine the Jewish friends, wait a minute, we're not going to do this on, on Sunday. We're supposed to do this on Saturday. So we see a change that God's people are having to transition through. Notice also that there's many lamps in the upper room. This says to me, this is no secret midnight meeting. Yeah, there may be another plot. But we're not ashamed of the gospel. We're not ashamed to be meeting together. We're going to be transparent. The lights are going to be burning bright. We're going to let the whole neighborhood know that we are here worshiping our Savior. And then I love this wonderful sidebar. Paul is teaching and he prolonged his message until midnight. Now most scholars believe this probably started with an evening service, probably after meal. So this, this evening service, Sunday evening, probably started about 7 or 8 o'clock. But at midnight, I mean, Paul is still going. So I thought I'd try that today. <laughs> the elders have, have locked the doors. I've got enough material to go till 4 or 5 o'clock this afternoon. If you need to use the restroom, you have to raise your hand and you only get 30 seconds because we, we got to get through this, okay? Don't worry about the Cowboys. They're going to win, right? Have you ever heard the old joke about the definition of a preacher? A preacher is someone who talks in somebody else's sleep. <laughs> Some of y'all are slow uh, on catching these things. A.T. Robertson was a, a noted New Testament Greek scholar. I've got his, his volumes of work and I always read his stuff. Uh, he, he's this, this grammatical technician of the Greek language and uh, it's very scholarly work. I mean, he doesn't tell stories. It's this is you know, what this word means and the best manuscripts and this is the tense and this is the best way to translate it. So when I'm reading through this passage, A.T. Roberts, I was humorously surprised the first time I've ever read him where he digressed from his discussion and he added this verse. Preachers usually have some excuse for the long sermon, which is not always clear to the exhausted audience. <laughs> so uh, Paul's excuse is he intends to leave the next morning. And so he's just trying to pour everything he in he has into these uh, local disciples. And then these next few verses, we get into a very interesting, wonderful plan of a young man's life. So there's this young man, Eutychus. Now here's, here's the facts, okay? It's after midnight, this young man... Uh, the word most scholars say would be between 8 and 14 year olds. You know, you have an 8 to 14 year old. Some of us remember 8 and 14 year olds and their attention spans. You know, it's midnight. They're, they're sitting on the windowsill there. And he falls asleep. And he falls three floors to his death. Now this is a tragedy right in the middle of a teaching time. And you can imagine the confusion. Paul runs down the stairs, falls on top of this dead body, uh, gives him a bear hug, and pronounces that he's alive, that he's 
raised to life. And I know this shouldn't be a humorous passage, but you would have think that the teaching time would have finished. <laughs> but they go back upstairs, they break bread. It's either a short meal or communion. And then Paul continues to teach till dawn breaks. I'm going, wow. <laughs> Just wow. I, I bet the teaching changed though. That we worship a Savior who's raised from the grave and has a resurrected power. Let me try to give some take-home points for this very quickly. When it comes to a change in life direction, and everything seems lost and hopeless and even dead, we have a God who can reveal a revived and resurrected wonderful plan for your life. He resurrects dead lives and dead plans and dreams. God many times is saying yes when you and I are saying no. This young man's pronounced dead by everyone except for God. Everyone says he's dead, but God's in the resurrecting business. And he's looking for that one person who will see that God's not finished yet in a dead situation. And Paul answers that call. And he rushes downstairs and he is used by God to bring the change of direction in the life of this boy and his family and indeed that whole church. And can I say to you that God wants to use you to present the wonderful plan of God to other people? You see, you have friends and you've heard through the rumor mill or maybe it's been announced to you their marriage is dead. You've seen it coming for a long time. And yet God has a plan to raise up that marriage and he's looking for someone to go to that couple and share the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have friends whose hopes are shattered. They see no direction in the future. And yet God is looking for that one person to step into that situation to point out the marvelous grace of God and that God is not finished with that person yet. In fact, he has a wonderful plan for them. I'd be willing to bet this morning that some of us have just given up on people. I'd be willing to bet some of us, um, we, we pray for them. But really we go, it's not going to happen. That friend is never going to become a believer in Christ. They have zero interest in it. And, and we've just kind of given up on them. Now I want to encourage you this week to share the gospel with that person you've given up on. Don't shy away from what God is doing in their life because it is for their benefit. Sharing how to become a Christian with someone is scary, right? Can I get an amen on that? I mean, it's frightening. It's terrifying. And this is where I think we often get stuck in the process. So we're out here and, and, and we're talking to a friend or 
or we're in the neighborhood and a friend comes over and they start sharing a sh- struggle or, or we're in the break room at, at, at work and, and a, a workmate just starts sharing a little bit about their life. I mean, they're, they're sharing some issues with us. They've got a child whose behavior is bad. They're in fear of losing their job. They're insecure about their message. I mean, there's all kinds of personal things that they may talk to you about. And most of the time, what we try to do is we try to understand them and help them fix it and find a solution as if we're a guidance counselor. Well, have have you tried this? You know, I, I went through something like this and here's what I did. You know, I've got a really good book. Are you a reader? Let, I want to get this book for you, and I want you to read this book. Man, there is a web page that talks just about this. And we're just giving solutions. We're, we're playing counselor rather than spiritual guide. And we have to remember the solution to their, their marriage, their parenting, their, their fear, their personal issues... Their insecurities, it's wrapped up in their need for salvation and finding his resurrected power and the wonderful plan for their life. If a friend has opened up to you like that and spiritual issues or personal issues are on the line, this should take the fear out of it, folks. They're sharing with you some personal things. This is an invitation. It's almost a cry on their part for a spiritual solution. They want to know what you got. Here's what I want you to write down, what I want you to practice doing. Stop being a counselor, be a spiritual friend, and ask this question. Can I ask you a personal question? Turn to somebody right now and just just practice that, okay? Just turn to somebody and go, can I ask you a personal question? Come on, one more time. I want your heart in this, okay? Can I ask you a personal question? All right, they've just shared something, right? And now you've asked, can I ask you a personal question? What do you think they're going to say? They're going to say, no, none of your business. No, this is an invitation. This should take the fear out of it, folks. It's just an easy phrase. Can I ask you a personal question? The personal question then is, have you ever invited Christ to be your Savior and ask you for forgiveness of sin and find his purpose for your life? Now, I don't know what response they're going to give you at that point. It's probably going to be a blank stare or I think so or I believe in Jesus. But then that's the opportunity to just go straight into it. You just share your story. Just share your story. I was once lost. I had these problems. They're not quite the same maybe as what you're going through. But I repented of my sin. I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And he's provided a pathway for me. I've I've messed it up a time or two. But I have a Savior. And would you like to know that Savior? 
And it all starts not trying to fix a problem, not trying to be a counselor, but a spiritual guide. Can I ask you a personal question? They're going to say yes. And you have an open opportunity to share your story. And it may well lead to an opportunity to share the plan of salvation. Does that help take the fear out of this thing? Now hang on to it because I want to come back to it in a moment. But we've got a few verses here I want to knock out. Um, would you look at verses uh, 13 through 16? And I'm going to knock these out in about 45 seconds. So buckle up. Here we go. Verse 13. Paul decides to walk on foot to Asos instead of sailing on the ship with the other people. I don't know why. Change of directions. Maybe it was time for him to contemplate God's wonderful plan for his life. I got nothing for you on that verse, okay? Verse 14, after meeting his friends in Asos, Paul sails to Mytilene. Verse 15, from there he goes to Chios, then Samos, and then Miletus. And then in verse 16, Paul decided not to go to Ephesus because he was hurrying to get to Jerusalem. Remember, he'd already missed Passover, so he's trying to get there in time for Pentecost. So what does all this mean? Hi, guys. I didn't know y'all were coming in, but welcome. You're at a perfect spot in this sermon. I've only got three more hours to go. <laughs> what do all those verses mean? It means God often changes directions. And we're going to get the rest of the story next week. That's the, that's the teaser. We finish this chapter. Paul really, 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 really wants to go to Jerusalem. And all the verses next week is his hopes and dreams, even against some counsel, to get to Jerusalem. But let me uh, share these verses from James, which I think speak to that, okay? James says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, you know, we're going to go to such and such a city, and we're going to spend a year there, and we're going to engage in business and make profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. That is, you make your own plans. And such boasting is evil. Therefore, if anyone knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Man proposes, God disposes. God has a wonderful plan for your life, but you've got to follow him completely. And God is saying yes when a lot of times we're saying no because he raises life, raises to life people who are dead in their sin. Now let's go back to that. You've asked the question. Can I ask you something personal? They've said yes. You've shared your story. And maybe, just maybe, they're uh, ready to listen to the plan of salvation. And then if they're ready, you can even lead them in a prayer of salvation. We have a sample one in your program. Uh, I believe it's on the inside cover. I've lost my program here. Uh, got it. Yeah. It's uh, right after First Tuesday. We're also going to have this on, on the board here. Uh, this is a prayer that people can pray to receive salvation. Uh, this is not 
anything magical about these words, okay? But if it expresses the true desires of the person's heart, then God will hear this prayer. God will forgive their sin and he will initiate this wonderful plan that will often include changes of direction. So I want us, rather than me having a closing prayer, this is going to be our closing prayer today and we're going to recite it together here in a moment. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this is that moment maybe where you're feeling the tug of God not to just repeat this prayer to appease the teacher but you really mean it you're ready you're ready to give your life to Christ this could be your day of salvation and if you say this prayer for the first time like that let me or, or somebody near you know about it you know before you leave say okay I did it I ask Christ to be my Savior because somebody in this room then wants to help you take those next steps of what it means to become a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. That makes sense? Okay. I'm not saying the prayer. We're all going to say it together. Um, let's even stand and do it. You've got it in your bulletin. You have it on the screen. And after this prayer... You're then invited to come and share in communion to receive um, that which represents the blood and the body broken uh, Christ on our behalf that gives us salvation. Um, so let's, let's do this together. Ready? Here we go. Dear God, I admit to you that I am a sinner and nothing I am or do makes me deserving of heaven. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me and rose from the grave. Right now, I put my trust in Christ alone as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for the forgiveness and everlasting life I now have. In Jesus' name, amen.